Here we go. Here we are. We're back on stage at the Phoenix Theater, Jim Aegis and Tom Gaffey, and we have a very, very special guest here tonight. Um, yeah, this is great. A while back, we had on a band called Not to Reason Why, and three of the members of that band, Paul Hale, Lauren Hale, and Naveed Manu Cherry, um, over the years have become three of my closest friends. And on that episode, we devoted a very long segment to their fascination with jingles. Starting in college and throughout their lives, they have uh, loved making jingles. And so what they would do is they would make jingles for businesses that didn't ask for them and just send them to them. And the hope was that, you know, these businesses would put them on the radio or put them on their Facebook. And that was payment enough for them because they just love to do it. And so their, their stuff was always kind of like fun, little tongue in cheek. Did they get any takers? Uh, they did actually. Okay. Uh, Roy's hot dogs in Petaluma was a fan. <laughs> Now, full disclosure, uh, Paul and Naveed are the ones who made the theme for On Stage with Jim and Tom that yes. we just heard. And so, you know, there's this shared love of jingles between all of us. And a very famous jingle from the Sonoma County area was the Windsor Waterworks theme that came out in the 90s, I believe. And this is interesting because people of my generation, I'm 31 years old, and people of my generation have a big nostalgia for the 90s. You see all these reboots of all these shows and all these things. And to anybody who grew up outside of Sonoma County, the Windsor Waterworks theme probably means nothing. was like a fun little fun innuendo in there gotta get wet gotta get wet so on that level some people are amused by it but it's just like a damn catchy jingle it is. and it's been a thing that um for years we've like we've, we've we've sung it we've joked about it people who didn't grow up in the area that have joined the group are, are intrigued by it so it's just like this fun sonoma county thing so we started thinking gosh wouldn't it be fun if we made a jingle in a commercial... Only fun for people like you. <laughs> ...that reimagined that theme if Windsor Waterworks were to come back in 2015. So we did just that. And Paul, Lauren, and Naveed came up with the song, and then I purchased a series of stock footage, and we assembled a commercial for Windsor Waterworks, what it would look like if Windsor Waterworks came back in 2015. This was about two months ago, and I'm going to play that song for you right now... Really updated instrumentation here on that. <laughs> and, you know, we put it out there on Facebook just because we like to share the work that we do, very similar to the jingles they would do years ago. And uh, we were very fortunate that it caught some steam. And by the end of its run, it got 15,000 views. Mix 104.9 actually played it on the air. <laughs> Froggy 92.9, Y100.9, and 101.7. I was ready to go. Not the, not the Fox, but the hit one. They all, you know, did their social media stuff about it. So it sort of became a hoax that we didn't really mean to do. And it was fun to watch because some people were outraged that Windsor Waterworks would come back during a drought. <laughs> 
Some people were outraged that people were outraged that Windsor Waterworks come back. Some people thought that it would actually save more water than if people would just use their hoses in their backyard. So it was a very fun social experiment. One big pool instead of about 100,000 others. Absolutely. (laughs) It makes sense to me. So anyway, this has been a very long story, but we were very tickled with ourselves, as we often are in the stuff that we do. And we (laughs) were easily tickled. And we were at dinner with some friends, and uh, they were musicians, some of whom studied at Sonoma State University. And a girl there mentioned that she knew the creator of the theme. He had been her teacher at Sonoma State University. His name was Warren Kahn. And so I looked him up. I, I reached out to him. I, I, you know, I said, gosh, you know, a big fan of this, this theme that you did. Had no idea about the rest of his biography. And, and he wrote back and he was nice. And, and that was sort of the end of it for a couple of days. And, and as I researched him more, I found out that the Windsor Waterworks theme was very, very much so just the tip of the iceberg on this guy. Anyway, I asked him on the show. He very graciously said yes. And tonight, we are very excited to welcome a man who has been nominated for three Grammy Awards. He's a man who has led personal growth courses in the U.S., South Africa, New Zealand, as well as in the U.S. federal prison system. He has been featured in a book recently called Stepping Stones to Success alongside Deepak Chopra, Jack Canfield, and Dennis Waitley. And we welcome a man who continues to produce jingles to this day, as well as uh, videos, radio commercials, and television commercials. You know, and the guy that made it okay to get wet when you get right down to it, in Sonoma County. Mm-hmm. So, tonight, we welcome to the program Warren Kahn. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, this was quite a surprise, how this all occurred, you know. Is this a surprise to you, that that song uh, has a special place in people's hearts? Well, I think that it's, um, I mean, when you write a jingle, one of the intentions is for it to be memorable. For it to take a piece of people's brains, actually, and uh, embed that imaging in their psyche, and also, hopefully, have them remember the product as well, and be successful for the client. And so, that's literally a... Uh, an acknowledgement of the effectiveness of what the intention was for somebody to say, boy, I remember that, I like that, I enjoy that. Because, you know, especially even in today's world, putting a commercial on and actually having people enjoy it, listen to it, remember it, you know, that's a, that's a craft in yeah. itself. You know who started doing that, actually, was Barry Manilow. Uh, that was one of his first things. I think he came up with the uh, Teach the World to Sing for Coca-Cola tune, actually. And I think he did the original McDonald's as well. I'm That's, not sure. Yep. I, no, be, I think you're be. right. Absolutely. Are you a student of uh, people who make jingles? I never really did a study of it. Yeah. You know, it was an accumulated talent. And, uh, you know, the truth of the matter is that, uh, you know, after I came to California from New York, from the East Coast, as a musician, professional musician, and I went from, you know, where you have to have a union card, and, you know, you're, you're given a certain scale... To perform and play in, in nightclubs and things to where you know you go in for a job and it's like well yeah we pass the hat and you get a pizza dinner yeah. you know and it went it was like a bit of a shock welcome to california it was a bit of a shock <laughs> so you know one of the things that i did was i opened a recording studio i wanted to kind of phase out being in cigarette smokes and alcohol till two o'clock in the morning every night so and you yeah. would perform in clubs yeah so yeah. I, was a, I, I played circuits all the way through the bay area and you know one of the first gigs i got was the old mill tavern you know in mill valley you know and i'd play for the hell's angels and i'd play for jefferson airplane and i'd play for all the people that would kind of frequent that bar yeah. the thing about the recording studio which is a whole other story that we'll get into in a moment you know as i kind of looked at well do I really want to be on the road? Do I really want to live in a Holiday Inn 28 days a year you know, of, a, of a month? 
and eat at Denny's and be on planes and trains and all that stuff. I made a choice at one point and I thought, you know, I'll record myself, I'll have a recording studio, I'll open it up, I'll be able to record my own songs and record my own music and offer the talent to other people. And so as a way of kind of surviving economically, I diversified. My brother got was a radio sales guy, so there was my lead into the media broadcast world. And so he would refer clients to me from time to time for me to develop jingles, slogans, commercials, those kinds of things. So I did it as kind of a sideline for a while as a subsidizing of income. Absolutely. As an artist. I could be an artist, I could be a teacher, and I could be an advertising music guy. A lot of people choose one path and one way of doing it, and they think that they can't do anything else. And it's very stymieing. So it's very refreshing when you see somebody who says, yeah, I'm this, but I'm this, and I'm this, and I'm this, and anybody can do it. I really don't ha- have a, a right way that you to do it. Yeah. You know, you have your way to do it. Uh, in a sense, people that stay on a very focused path, you know, if my goal was to be a major label recording artist, which was one of my paths, and I came very close a couple of times. You've to worked with path. a few of them. I worked with a few of them, but actually yeah. I had a career where I was the main talent yeah. to be signed. And um, I came very close to that path. And that does require that persistence, focus, do whatever it takes kind of a thing. I was more interested in the quality of my life and where I live. I love living in Sonoma County. I want to wake up in my own bed with my wife next to me, you know, my kids, my grandkids, the horses, the beautiful sunrise. And I'm fine to travel some. The price you pay for a major label act is you're on the road touring for a long, long time yeah. until you become so big you, can't, you don't need to do it anymore. And uh, I made that choice. So diversification was part of the philosophy of how am I going to get a quality of life, still be involved creatively in every aspect of my life. And no matter what I'm doing, I'm living my life purpose. You know, I'm bringing my creativity. I'm bringing my philosophy of life. I'm, if I'm working with a client in advertising, I'm looking for what, it, what, are their, what are the things that they value? How do they want their company represented? Yeah. What are the real stories of their lives and, and why they got into the businesses? And so I, 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 I do by coaching in my advertising. What I think is interesting is you talked about your living your life's purpose through the path that you've chosen. And you also talked about how the skills that you have in the life coaching, which I don't think I mentioned specifically in the introduction, which is a very important part of your life, but the skills that you have there stack and help you do the recording and vice versa. And that's a very good philosophy because that can be the case for anything anybody does. Yeah, and I wasn't always so clear about that. Yeah. I mean, you know, I did follow a life path. It was, you know, things happen and you follow that course at that time. But there was a time where, in a sense, I actually resisted doing more advertising work because I held it as kind of less than my artistic, my real music, my, you know, I had kind of an attitude about it. But it paid the bills, so I would do it. I had an opportunity over time as things developed. My brother and I kept exploring whether we were going to do an official agency together, you know, make this more official. And I sort of resisted it because I held it as being off purpose. And um, I did some process work in the methodology that I use as a trainer. And I got to the core of it. And the truth that I came to was that wherever I am, no matter what I'm doing, I'm bringing what I have to bring. No matter whether it's advertising, coaching, music, 
producing an artist in the studio. I'm using everything that I've learned and I'm using my trust to explore the mysteries and the places that are unknown or yet to be found, the accidents that you and I were talking about earlier. And, um, and what was really interesting is right around that time that I formed the agency officially with my brother called Media Sonics, I was also starting to develop my life coaching practice. And who would have thunk it? But who became a lot of my life coaching clients were my business clients because huh. they would meet me, hear how I speak, hear my philosophy, see how I worked with them, see Dig how I did tunes. the creative processes. And they said, boy, you know, Tell me more about that. Let's go into that because I believe your, your, your spirituality, your coaching, your outlook on life, it is the foundation for everything else that you do. It is. On your website, you have a story about a bird that died when you were a small boy. Mm. Do you mind sharing that story with us? Mm. Yeah, well, I do remember it, um, that there was always this fascination I had with life. You know, the mystery of life. That, you know, we're... In a sense, one second there's this bird that's alive and flapping and flying and it flies into a window and it drops on the ground and it's shaking. And I remember it, there's this little boy just picking up that bird and holding it and just seeing the detail of the feathers and the colors of the eyes and, and watching it kind of hold on to that last breath of life, shaking. And for me at that moment, just to hold that bird and comfort that bird, and then in the moment it goes still. Now, that body is the same body that was alive a few seconds earlier. What happened? What, what, what's different? Where did it go? How did, what, what's that life force about? I always had that curiosity, so in a sense I was a spiritual seeker. And I went through many different practices in my life. I was born a Jewish uh, person, and I got very into that for a while. And then I, when I was at the university in upstate New York at Ithaca College, getting my music degree in teaching, a Baptist church choir hired me because I have very good choir skills. And the university recommended me. He said, this guy's a very good choir director who works with you know choirs. So I had their Baptist church choir for a year and a half. So I got a whole Christian experience. Ah. Then I went to California, and I heard about a guru, you know, a Sikh teacher in, from India. Started getting into meditation, and I went to India, and I was on this path for seven years, you know, called Ruhani Satsang. And that whole path, one step just kept leading to the other, and it wasn't like each one was wrong, it was like I was building a uh, collection of spiritual understanding. You know, what is the common denominator of all that spirituality, all those practices? What are, we, what are they really trying to experience? And at the time, I was going through a really difficult time with my first marriage. And that led me, through a friend recommendation, to go take a life training weekend in San Jose, California. One room was Life Spring, and one room was Est, and one room was Life Training. And I had this amazing experience of being able to see how I was presenting myself to the world, all of my dramas, my false faces, my fear, my arrogance, my protection, 
protection, all of these things that I had assembled through all the experiences of my life that were actually keeping me disconnected, separated, back behind some false exterior. And when those walls started to come down, I had a sense of peace, spirituality, aliveness, connection that I'd never experienced before. And that started me on a journey, 1982, to being more involved with the organization called More to Life. In 1995, I went away to a week-long course in Georgia, a residential course for the program, and I felt a calling to become a trainer for this organization. So I thought, okay, it'll take me about two years to become a trainer. No, I had a lot to unlearn. Nine years. Is the unlearning a painful process? It can be. Yeah, can be but you know, the size of the pain, you know, the breaking of the false exterior is also the size of the win that's on the other side. You know, there's learning that is kind of incremental and there's learning that's kind of like you go in a big stride and then you fall back and then you go up. But the most painful times when I really, you know, got hopeless and disheartened and uh, hurt, you know, mis misunderstood and trying so hard and it not coming as fast as I demanded it to come. All of those were the biggest teachings for me because on the other side, I got to be surrendering to the reality, to life's timeline, not my timeline. Things take longer sometimes. And to allow things to unfold. Uh, my teacher used to say, you know, we, we could make you a trainer right now, but we're looking for a very fine wine. So we're going to keep you in the barrel a little longer. And this was Dr. Bradford? Dr. Bradford Brown. He was my main teacher and my mentor and champion and father figure. Change your life, this guy. Absolutely. He could see right into me. He was an amazing, masterful teacher, and I've learned a lot from him. And I, 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 I feel him coming through me a lot when I'm training. I, uh, I did Life Spring. So while you were in one side... Uh, we may have was, been on the other side of the wall. I, I could have been on the other side of the wall. What a, a fascinating thing. Tell yeah. us about that. Well, LifeSpring, is, uh, pretty much I'm, I'm hearing his experience and realizing, yeah, this is very close to the same thing. You're, uh, this first weekend, uh, the first training is an intense thing. You're thrown into uh, a room with a whole bunch of people. And there's a, a lot of uh, exterior noise. There's a lot, of, a lot of inner noise at the same time that's being thrown at you and processed with you and you're working with dyads and groups and all of these faces you haven't met before and, and concepts digging into you uh, that uh, you hadn't even considered before. And uh, something you would care not to consider at times. But these people were very fierce in the way they would have you look at it. Uh, yes, we understand that you're, that you're not in the mood to look at this, and that's why we're going to look at this right now. And while you're going through this experience personally, you're also in a room or several rooms with many other people going through the same experience, uh, learning the same things about themselves and different things about themselves. And you watch the way they process it and you hear the way that they react and you see yourself reacting and you feel yourself reacting. And by the time you're done with that first weekend, it's, it's the most incredible thing. Uh, it moved me so much. My mom actually took it. And she took it farther than I did. She went several trainings well past what I did. 
And I remember one night uh, I was over at her house and she was, she had just come back from one of the trainings and she was so totally distraught. I said, geez, mom, are you sure you want to go any farther? I said, well, I have to. I, I, I have to see what's on the other side of the wall. And, uh, you know, Warren just said it. That's exactly it. It's, it's getting to, that, to the other side of the wall, smashing the wall. And it's the same catharsis, whether it's a high moment or whether it's a low moment, when you finally burst through that wall. Oh, my God. What a revelation. And it's only the path forward once you blow through the wall. And that's, uh, you know, I get that listening to Warren explain it. And when you mentioned on the other side of the wall, it's just, wow, mm-hmm. it's weird. It works for me right now in my life. It's like uh, each person... <laughs> At their real core, we call it in mortal life uh, jargon, your essential self, who you really are, you know, and, you know, babies have that kind of innocence. You know, when you see them, they don't, they got poop coming out of their butts and they got snot coming out of their nose. This is why, you know, I don't want to get anywhere close to a kid until they're about four or five. And they're wide open, you know, they're wide open. When they get pissed, they get pissed and they have their piss off and then five minutes later, they don't even remember it. It's like they don't hold on to stuff. And over our lives, we just layer and layer and layer through our learning. Oh, and through our traumas. and Through, through our, our traumas, through our experiences. We I throw all, things. All these <laughs> things about who I'm supposed to be in the world and how do I have to look and appear in order to be accepted and loved and appreciated and, and survive and, and who I'm afraid I am. Maybe I'm not good enough or I look bad or I'm ugly or I'm stupid. or you know, And all of those layers literally just start to cover over that essential self. And so the processing is literally an assault from life through the events of your life to break through those covers covers. so you can live from your true self. Oh man, the walls people build up, it's, it's very, it's unfortunate what, what, what the suffering that, that those walls can bring. Well, it may not be unfortunate. It may just be that's the way it is, that that's the process of life, literally is for us to keep evolving to our highest and most noble self. If you're on that path, you choose that path, you choose the lowest moments, you choose the highest moments, because you can't experience ecstasy unless you've also experienced hopelessness and despair. You know, I used to think, as I evolve, it's just going to get happier and more joyful, and I'm going to have less of this stuff over here. But literally, it opens up in both directions the more that you allow life to fully engage with you, yeah, your emotions, your feelings, your, your whole perspective, you allow it to hit you. you know, I feel the suffering of the world. I feel hunger and pain and death and all that. I allow it to hit me. I allow myself to weep and mourn and cry and scream and give the finger to God. and all. I allow myself to have those moments. But then, after the expression of negativity is released... And I allow myself to get in line with life. Then I experience the peace, joy, fulfillment, satisfaction of bringing my best to whatever's happening. Just because you uh, make some personal growth or you're going in a direction where maybe you're more aware does not mean that you're not going to feel negative emotions. I think that's, that's, a, that's a big misconception sometimes. I don't think you can ever conquer that if you're uh, living the human experience. If you're really honest, you're going to get angry. Yeah. There are things that don't line up the way you want. But you are disarming those triggers, those trigger points, the points that remind you of fearful activities or fearful consequences or old wounds. You know, those are trigger points, and that's when we get reactive, angry, hostile, violent, you know, where we contaminate our relationships, contaminate our work environments, that I am, over the time, 
and anybody that's on a path of evolution is about dismantling those buttons, those patterns, those automatic reactions, so that you can just be more in alignment with life, more responsive to life, more effective, more impactful, you know, more at one with. There's a section where you talk about being one of around 25 trainers that are equipped to deliver some of the most powerful human development experiences that you've witnessed in your lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us about that. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, I'll pick up on a little bit of what we started a little bit before. I took this training in 1982. I went through, I was going through a, whether I was going to stay in this marriage or not. My fear was I was going to ruin my son, who was four years old, by leaving the marriage. But yet the marriage was just not working, and it was a very, you know, hostile house and I went through the weekend and what I found was that I was an opportunity for me to trust life that even if I left the marriage you know that I was going to love my son and be with him and and also be there for my wife as well that there wasn't a need to have it be a hostile breakup it was just getting the reality of that this wasn't working and so out of that experience I stayed involved a bit with the program, but in 1992, my finally my brother went to the training. I'd been trying to enroll him for 10 years, and he said, well, I'll go if you come and play on the team, because there's a big volunteer team. So I went to San Jose, and he took the training, had a marvelous experience, and I all of a sudden had a marvelous experience being in service of having other people experience the training. Was that your first time on the team? That was my first time on team, 1992, 10 years later. Yeah. And I was on every team after that. You know, every time there was a training, I was on the team. And I just used to watch the trainers and go, how did they see that? How did they know that? How did they see to say that one yeah. thing or put their hand on the shoulder and the person cracks open and, or they or can kind of sense the history that needs to be released. Or It was just a miracle to me. I was fascinated by it. And so over time, uh, I, I got more and more involved in the organization as a leader. This is called the Mortal Life Foundation. But I went to this advanced course and through the experiences of the advanced course, I felt this pull, literally a pull from inside of myself that says, this is your path. Will you do what it takes to become a trainer of this work so that you can go and lead people to their essential selves through these experiential programs? You know, I would think that as you move uh, from different city to different city, country to country, uh, there's got to be a cultural difference in, with, to, to every training, I would think. There's got to be something different about it, the way it's presented, uh, even the places it's presented in, I would think. Well, I think it's really... Uh, true and yes I think wherever you go what I found is people are basically the same yeah. that when you come down to the elements of people you know wanting to be loved wanting to love wanting to belong wanting to make a contribution you know what is, um, what is the point why am I here you know these, why am these I here questions. these are all the eternal questions that I think whether you're a Zulu or whether you're a New Zealander, or whether you're, a, you know, from Australia or, the, or Minneapolis, when you take peel back the, the layers, that literally that essence is is common, you know, and it's like we all have a spiritual light that is the same light, 
And yes, is it different when I go to South Africa and I can't pronounce the names and I don't have know how to do a click in the voice and there's 14 different languages and yeah, and there's cultural norms that are different, you know, and so I may be training with a trainer from South Africa to help with some of those things, you know, because I had to learn all about apartheid. Yeah. And about the devastating stories, you know, of people and how they were treated. And in those trainings, you'll have the Afrikaans guard, who they're in in their 50s, who were the oppressors, sitting next to someone whose whole family was murdered or killed or, you know, or they were, you know, it's like the Holocaust almost, right? And they're sitting right next to each other and you hear the pain each one is carrying. And by the time that 30 hours is up, those people are connected and loving and, and holding each they other. are the same. And forgiving and real forgiveness. Not just like, I'm going to forgive. You know, the real all the way to, to the, on the cellular level. Yeah. And, and when I get to be a part of that process, oh. it's like worth the 25-hour flight and it's worth my baggage getting lost and yeah. it's worth me being away from home for three weeks and yeah. it's worth, you know. So what's interesting about the process and the work you've done is I, I don't hear you make mention of spirituality or a higher power. Um, does that play a role? You know, I work with all religions, you know, in my coaching practice and in the trainings, it's non-denominational. And so there's a spiritual basis. In fact, the founders of Mortal Life were both Episcopal priests. But they were, you know, uh, educated in all spiritual practices and religions. You know, we're a completely inclusive organization in terms of gay, straight, ethnicity, religion, all of that. And when you start to look at the words of the teachers, you know, let's take Jesus, for example, since Christianity is so popular in our country. And you look at, For example, the biggest metaphor of Christianity is the cross. Okay? So here's life bringing Jesus suffering and death when he's been a servant of life. So what does Jesus do? Jesus says, where the hell are you, God? How come you haven't come save me? Look at all I did for you. There was the human being complaining, whining, saying, I'm owed. You need to give me a good life. I've been really good here. I'm entitled to this. I'm entitled to this. What are you suffering? How come I'm getting stuck here? Where are you? How dare you? How dare you? Literally. So getting, that's the negative expression part. The catharsis, the letting go of the negativity, expressing it. When that gets expressed, then he went to the next statement, which was, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do which even people that are attacking you or hurting you or killing you or that literally forgiveness is that higher graceful state. You know, to be open-hearted in the moment of, you know, somebody assaulting you, hurting you. Very, very amazing metaphor. And then the third stage of what he said was, into thy hands I commend my spirit, which means I surrender to that which is bigger than me. I surrender to the reality of life as it's being given to me. I'm, I'm it. I'm with you. I'm in. That's in the flow, aligned, yes. joining, unified, one with, in the moment of the greatest suffering. Yep. 
So it's in all the religions. And then it follows with the rebirth. Mm-hmm. It's a huge metaphor. And, yeah, you use the right metaphor with me. Yeah. And, you know, and you can find those metaphors in any religious spaces, you know. It's just that people have made it into uh, other things, you know. And I, I, I try not to be judgmental about what people do with things like that. Yeah. I, I, I choose to be... Um, forgiving of whatever i don't know i don't have the answer yeah you know i don't i I, I think what what you're getting at is it's uh you would never use these words but it's a shame when people use something that can be used to uplift others and help others as a as a weapon instead um yeah i mean you know i'm gonna kill you in the name of god i mean or whatever we see it all over the place in the world right now yeah i think one of the big things that people have is why I think they do too. I think that causes people such despair. Yeah, that question, yeah. why? I want to know why. And if you look underneath that question, really, there's just a fear there that says, well, if I know the reason why, then I'll either be okay with it or I'll be able to prevent it from happening. <laughs> and really, to me, it's like the booby prize because I don't hear anything coming back. <laughs> you know, you can go why all, all you want. Oh, man. There's no answer coming back. So I, I've dropped why. And I just have replaced it with is. Is. This is. This is happening. Yeah. Okay, now what? How will I be with it? Rather than why. I don't I don't know why. Down here I hear that question an awful lot. The why. Well the why and, and it it, uh, it has to come back to it's not the why, it is the what is. Uh, this is what we have to deal with. This is what we're working with right now. We want to move off this position and move forward with it or move in some direction with it. Uh, so we can look at why, but when we find out why, is that going to move us forward? Probably not. And can you even know why? I mean, the whole definition of the word faith. What is faith? Faith is a leap of faith. I mean, you're literally trusting something you can't know. Yeah. I mean, there's so many things I just don't understand. I don't need to understand them. No, it is, it is the what is. Oh, is. It is. It is, period. Yeah, yeah. This is so. And, and there's a lot that I don't even know what is. Will I trust it? Will I, you know? um, Yeah, but even if you trust it or not, uh, it still is the is, and it's probably going to go in that direction. So trust sometimes doesn't mean much either, because there you are. And this has happened is another one. (laughs) This has happened. So, you know, it's like I have a disease or I, I can't ride a bike as far as I used to because I'm 64 now. Or, you know, getting the real limits. How do I adjust? You know, the teacher, Brad Brown, Dr. Bradford Brown, he was a sailor. You know, he, had a, he, he used to like big sailboat he used to have. And I think that he learned a lot from sailing. Yeah. Because when you're out on the boat, what you're looking for is that moment where that boat lifts. The sail is at the right angle. The tiller is at the right angle. The boat is pointed in the right direction. And literally it catches all the elements of life and nature in a moment where everything is aligned and the boat lifts. And often you're not pointed at the destination when you're sailing. You need to tack. You know, sailing is not in a straight line. I want to go over here. I'm going over here. No, life says, go over here. Yeah. Go over here. Go over here. We'll get there. We may not get there as fast as you thought you were going to get there. And you may even end up in a different port. 
Yeah, and you may like it better. Yeah. Maybe. So, and there's no wind now, so let's just have lunch and get a suntan. Yeah, you know, you I go. mean, literally, it really is a lesson from life to read that current, read that current of life to align with it. And you can have that lift. Musicians have it. Yeah, when, and, and that happens, I think, so often with musicians. It's just one example of how you aim at something and you come up with something entirely different. But in the process, you've come up with something quite nice. I don't know how that works with jingles, though. <laughs> well, I think creativity blossoms when you're present. Now, presence is being here, not there. You know, it's a coach. You know, I used to have a, a slogan when I first started coaching, I'll help you get there. But the T was a different color, so you could see the word here. You know, because we think it's about getting over there. We're so busy, like, when I retire, when Friday night comes. When I move out of this town. When I move out of this town. When I meet the right person. Exactly. Yeah. Then I want to have the hit song. Yeah, can't do now. But then, you know, yeah. they move to the place, they meet the person, they do this, and wait, I still have the despair inside me. Wait a minute. This then isn't I'll the way be, it was supposed right. to be. Then I'll be successful. Well, once, then I'll, yeah. once I have 100000 in my bank account, then, then you get 100000 I, I am there, you but know? I'm still here. Exactly. It's, no, it's, it's a, it's, so everything is, is a practice in reframing. And, and, and deconstructing and then saying, well, hey, wait a minute. That's important. And it, it's amazing how that can apply in almost every uh, aspect of life. Absolutely. I say dream the future. It's okay to have goals and plans. It's great. You know, I have an intent to this and I have a project that I'm doing for this. And have your action steps and your plan and your timeline and keep your word and see what happens along the way. But get here. Learn from the past, dream the future, live in the present, because it's the only time you actually really have. Well, <laughs> you know, learning about you was very serendipitous and very and just very unexpected. And then going into tonight, I don't think any of us thought that we would, you know, talk about music briefly and then really get in very deeply into the spiritual work you do, the coaching work you do. And I think it has been really great. I've really enjoyed it very much. I have too. Yeah, well, thank you for that. And, you know, I mean, as, a, as it went, it's fine where it went. And, and there are some other things like, uh, you know, in terms of New to the Brain, which we didn't talk very much about, the album is full of the same material. This is important. So he's uh, referencing a CD that he released in 2013 called New to the Brain. Tell him about it in a couple sentences here. Well, I had a songwriting partner, Lawrence Stoller, who is a master gem sculptor. I mean, he doesn't do the, he does little necklaces, but he does the three-ton rocks yeah. that you see, the big gems that come out of the caves in South America and places like that. And he's a world-class, world-class sculptor. And uh, you can look at his stuff at, at uh, Crystal Works. It's a small club of Lawrence people Stoller. that are world-class sculptors. But he's also the nephew of Mike Stoller, who's from Lieber and Stoller, the, one of the most famous songwriting teams that were ever were. On Broadway, all the oh. Elvis Presley, Stand By Me, all the Elvis Presley songs, all of that, Love Potion Number 9. I mean, just yes. one of the most honored songwriting teams. And so he has that creative, musical, lyrical sense in him. And we've been great friends for many, many years. We did this album together called New to the Brain. And... Uh, 
and many of the songs have some of the philosophical underpinnings that we've been talking about tonight. The other thing that we didn't talk much about is you had a chapter in a book called Stepping Stones to Success. And, uh, of course, you are in there with Deepak Chopra. He has a chapter. Jack Canfield, uh, author of Chicken Soup for the Soul series. Uh, Dennis Whaley. And, hey, look, there you are on the cover, Warren Kahn. Um, tell us about your chapter. What, what do you talk about in that book? Well, this is an interesting project. This, in fact, this has just been released. The ebook has been out for about a year, but I just got the books, actually, the physical books, about two or three weeks ago. So this is right off the press here. And... Um, I, I thought I would write a chapter. Since people talk about success as how to be successful, I thought I would do something a little different. So my chapter is called Five Big Fat Lies About Success. You know, it's really like those sacredly held assumptions in our culture about what success is defined by. You know, and we talked about, you know, a lot in our, co- our talk tonight about achieving or getting something out there or getting to this place and when I have that much money or when I get the Grammy or when I have the house on the hill with this kind of car and you know all of those kinds of uh, and the process of getting there too there's a lot of things that are embedded in our pressured uh, culture plus where is my self-worth coming from you know we talk about your essential self you know well I'll be worth it when I'm, yes. or I've won this title, or I have, I'm a professor of music, and I get three Grammy nominations, and I'm a senior trainer. And Good thing you, know. you accomplished all those I things. I mean, you know, right? Now <laughs> yeah. I'm okay, you know? Yeah. But, you know, you find that if you haven't really worked on the true sense of self-esteem, there's never enough. It's like a, a bucket that has holes in it, and you keep trying to fill it with trophies yeah. or raises or, or jobs or haircuts or fast cars or drugs, women. drugs, whatever, yeah, yeah. money, you know, and, and the bucket just keeps emptying. Yeah, and, yeah. You, and you feel it inside you. It's, it's, uh, it's like a malady of the soul, you know. You feel empty, so you just keep going to the same familiar uh, patterns I'll and habits. I'll just do it more. Yeah. I'll just do more of it, and then I'll get there. And so, you know, I mean, one of the things that I go back to, like, my experiences in South Africa, you know, where I got to walk through the townships of South Africa, which were the, the yeah. real poverty. I mean, miles and miles of people yeah. living in cardboard or corrugated metal with tires on the, and, you know, hardly any running water and hardly, and just down the street from mansions. Yeah. I'm talking about mansions, big mansions, economic, very different economic realities. But, you know, I was walking through the township there, came upon these two little kids. I have a picture of them. I, I can still remember. It brings tears to my eyes. They're playing outside their little house and they're playing with a stick and a rock and I think a, an empty soda can and they're pushing the thing around and they, I come in and they come by and their faces are like lit up with these smiles and wide eyes. It's like they're living a joyful life. Now my Western mind is going, they don't have TVs and they don't have running water and they don't have clothes. Their clothes have holes in them and, you know, they're, and we got to save them or we got to do something or we got to help them or we got to, you know, they have everything they need. Yeah. They're thriving. They're completely present. Yeah. They don't have an Xbox. They're not saying, well, I don't have the latest iPhone. They're not, you know, they're not lusting after something. They're just being with that rock and that stick and each other and having joy. 
Now, who's who's the one that is civilized in a sense? Yeah. Yes, we're chasing so many things. So, anyway, the chapter yeah. <laughs> speaks to you know those assumptions. They're big fat lies that we have literally bought. And we live our lives chasing these things as if they're true. And I'm raising the question, is it really delivering on the promise? And can you, in a sense, say, well, hang on, that's really not working for me. Maybe I'd like to do something different. And 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 that way, defining your success, your true self-worth, you know, what is a successful life and, and that. So that's what's in the chapter. Well, we used the, uh, the word earlier, reframing, uh, redefining. These are very important skills one can have when trying to deconstruct and see, well, well why do I feel so bad? And, what, and why, why do I feel this emptiness and this sadness inside me? Uh, the ability to redefine and, and reassess and reframe is very valuable. Yeah, and, and one thing I love about the way you, def- you, know, you feed back on the comments is that you include both components because there's an intellectual reframing that only takes you so far. And then there's a knowing reframing that's in your body. It has a physical resonance. You know, that, that sixth sense or that something that your, your body just goes, that's yeah. so. You know, it recognizes the truth. Because I think a lot of our culture wants the intellectual understanding, but they're not, it's not in their being, and so therefore their behavior doesn't match their thinking, even if they think they got the answer. And when you get both of those things aligned, your intellect and your physical knowing, when all of that is in tune, then the boat lifts. I just want to say, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm thrilled that you wrote a jingle for the Windsor Waterworks theme yeah, park absolutely. back so long ago. Hopefully this was not the worst experience of your entire life, though I know we don't use that word worst to define <laughs> anything. No, I mean, it, I just trusted, you know, that this is literally an opportunity coming to me. This was easy. You know, this came literally out of the blue, and I love those. You know, and I trust that that's coming to me. And I say, okay, well, yeah. let me take a look. And, you know, I think this has been a very uh, wonderful experience. I'm glad to meet both yeah. of you gentlemen. Yeah, thank you for coming. And, um, and thank you so much for the opportunity. And, uh, you know, who knows uh, who may be touched by what we've talked about that's tonight. That's what I'm hoping. Yeah. And, uh, and who knows where, where this will go. I mean, you know... Uh, I'm into trusting the flow. Well, we really appreciate you coming tonight, and it has been a whole bunch of fun. Now, can I, you know, can I give myself a commercial plug here? Oh, please sure, do. Sure, please do. Yeah, yeah so, so there's newtothebrain.com, new to the brain, the number two, dot com. And that music is really creative. Beautiful. And so I think you'll really give it a listen. There's individual coaching sessions with me. WarrenConLifeCoaching.com is the website. You have a schedule, there's a scheduled page on there if you want to do one-on-one with me. There's MoreToLife.org. Uh, the book, uh, Stepping Stones to Success, can be purchased uh, through my website. And then Mediasonics, you know, is the advertising agency that creates all those jingles. And there's been quite a history of them. I mean, lots of them. We actually didn't go down Jingle Lane today, but that's okay. There's See, and that's where I thought we were going. Yeah, that's yeah, all right. I well, know. it didn't go that way. No, me. and you know, that's, uh, we could do that's another one serendipity. So. 
Well, you know, maybe we'll have a jingle episode sometime where we have the other jingle makers on. We can compare notes and oh, just okay. it'll be a little more uh, a little, little lighter. A uh, jingle hoot nanny. Yeah. yeah. Oh man, a jingle hoot nanny. Or a jingle off. You may you may get an email from me sometime. <laughs> <about that. laughs> um, and then Banquet Studios. Well, thank you so much for joining us yeah, tonight. Thank you. You're so welcome. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to plug myself fun. there for a moment. And you know, I think to play us out. Yes. Um, why don't we all get wet? Um, well, that is how the song goes. Here we go. Uh, the Windsor Waterworks theme from my childhood uh, played now here in 2015. Now, see, you guys are only listening, but I want you to know I'm at the top of the slide right now. And as soon as he starts playing this piece, I'm going down. Mm-hmm.